Now let's get straight to this first article we found okay. and it's all on the stigma of mental illness and specifically the stigma of mental illness in a parent may have yep. an impact on their parenting style and in turn, the development of their children. So we've spoken about the stigma of mental illness before. How do you think a stigma can affect a parent who has a mental health issue to actually parent properly? Yeah, well, when parents suffer a mental illness, there are many factors that can influence their role as a parent. One of this can be the stigma associated with the illness. Of course, other factors can be genetics or learned behavior. And of course, the impact of poorly managed and controlled mental health symptoms can have an impact on parenting, of course, as, as well. Of course, the mental illness of a spouse can lead to marital problems in some instances, and that can also have an impact on parenting as well. But looking at stigma alone, this includes prejudice and stereotype which can lead to very often isolation, shame, and distancing. Mm. Uh, societal responses like, you know, lack of voc vocational and educational opportunities, you know, people don't get jobs so easily. Uh, these can significantly impact the individual and then the children under their care. Mm. Of course, you know, stigma is across the board. Uh, and sometimes it can be lack of funding, lack of services, and research in mental health, which we often see in developing countries like ours. And due to this, it can also have an indirect effect on the ability of a parent with mental illness to effectively parent. So are you saying that most parents with mental illness or mental health issues cannot parent? No, not necessarily. I don't think that's... Uh, you know, it's not uh, A plus B is equal to C sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, parents and caregivers are critical figures in a child's development, but there are many other factors that are involved in the development of mental health problems. Mm. Uh, but we do know that family-related early experiences have a profound and maybe long-lasting effect on children. In fact, studies have shown that experiencing parental separation discord or loss of a parent or living with a mentally ill carer, uh, risks uh, you know, of mental health problems in lifespan. One study shows that 56% of people who experienced uh, parental divorce in childhood developed depression in adulthood mm. uh, compared to those who didn't have the same experience. But there's still that 44% who didn't develop it. So there are other factors in play, including genetics, temperament, resilience, vulnerability. Also, it may not just be the divorce or the loss at that moment. It could also be the resulting financial difficulties, the shame, the changes in social networks or the accommodation that they need now need to get used to. So in the end, parenting is one of the many factors. And it's like a big jigsaw puzzle. And these factors need to come together to create the full picture, I guess. I think in this, um, in this article, it sort, of says, it sort of touches more on the stigma as in like, you know, when someone yeah. has 
mental illness, um, the entire family will say, oh, she, she is not fit or he is not fit to be a parent and they will take the child away because of that stigma. Uh, even though it's, like you said, a combination of all sorts of criteria for a parent to parent properly and to have yeah. mental health issues, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, parents have been typically blamed for their children's mental health issues. If if a child has a mental health issue, the parent is to blame. And when it comes to stigma for a child's mental uh, health issues or to get treatment for a child, the stigma is there that says that, oh, I am to blame. I'm not going to bring my child to go see a psychi- psychiatrist or a psychologist because mm-hmm. they would say that uh, I caused this mental health issue. Yeah. Well, that's quite sad because basically the early the onset of treatment, the better the outcomes are. And I think it's important for parents to know that it's always a combination of factors. It cannot be just one. Mm. And those factors, you know, may be out of their control. Uh, It could be school. It could be, you know, Facebook. It could be social media. It could be a variety of things and not just parenting. And so, you know, shed the guilt and the blame and everything else and look for, you know, appropriate help and recovery at an early stage. I think that's the important message. All right, let's move on to our next article. And uh, this one is taken from uh, an article from Australia, but because they have a lot of rural areas in Australia where it's like really far out from a a functioning town, you know? So um, in this article, it says that rural GPs are urged to look after their, uh, their their patients' mental health as well. So I'm thinking about us here in Malaysia. We have a lot of rural areas as well. Like, are their mental health being taken care of? Yeah. Well, I think this is basically an opinion piece in the News GP of the Royal Australian College of GPs. And it suggests that the pandemic actually has maybe created more problems for rural people accessing mental health care. I think it's common throughout the world. I think it's not just unique to Australia. I'm sure in Malaysia as well, this can be a a problem. Uh, But we have a system of general practitioners and primary care uh, doctors and, you know, healthcare professionals that are accessible for most people throughout the country, uh, irrespective of rural or urban. Um, The thing is, how competent are they in dealing, are they in dealing with mental health issues? And uh, only, you know, recently has mental health been, uh, you know, emphasized more in undergraduate studies for medical schools. I mean, the last 15, 20 years, perhaps. Uh, Before that, it was a very short sort of posting. You either did it, didn't do it. It was optional. But now it's mandated that we have mental health as a huge component in the training of new doctors. Mm. Uh, so the younger doctors are maybe more capable of you know, managing dealing with this. Uh, there is, however, a gap because you, know, you train as a doctor, you come out, and then you're doing your apprenticeship, which is housemanship. And that now in Malaysia is two years where you put what you've learned into practice. Now, in housemanship, it's not mandated that you do a psychiatry posting. And this can be a gap where, you know, people may lose the skills and the, you know, whatever they learned in undergraduate to be able to create that when they come out. Uh, yeah, but uh, we have been involved. I mean, a lot of psychiatrists have been involved in training general practitioners, primary care doctors, 
we've conducted CPDs and I still do them myself. I recently conducted two webinars for general practitioners uh, in dealing with mental health through the COVID period as well. The unique sort of mental health problems that they may you know, encounter in their practice. Uh, yeah, so I think it's important that, you know, maybe doctors themselves empower themselves with the knowledge and understanding of mental health. But can these rural doctors, like even healthcare is hard to come by, can these mm. rural doctors or GPs properly diagnose and treat mental illness? See, we divide psychiatric disorders into two major groups, the high prevalent and the low prevalent psychiatric disorders. The high prevalent disorders are the ones that occurs in 10 to 15% of the population. I mean, I'm talking about anxiety disorders. They're more common than diabetes and hypertension. They are primary care problems. They're not specialist problems. I mean, we have about 400, 450 psychiatrists. Are we going to deal with 15% of the population? So they really need to be managed in primary care and in general practice. And yeah, so the sad thing is for a long time, it hasn't been actually acknowledged or treated appropriately. But now I think a lot of healthcare professionals are stepping up to help in dealing with the more common illnesses, the high prevalent disorders. Now, illnesses that are serious and complex like schizophrenia, bipolar, that may be a bit too hard to deal with in primary care or in a general practice setting. And only maybe the, the stable patients who just need reviews are the ones that can be managed in that sort of setting. But otherwise, they would maybe require more specialist care. So it's the large proportion that actually can be managed in a rural setting or any setting by general doctors as well. Okay. So how can we actually ensure that the mental health of the rural folks are like rural folks are taken care of? Should we send more young doctors into the rural areas who have, you know, this um, a psychological background, psychology yeah. background? Yeah, well, I mean, the training in psychiatry and mental health has been there for some time now in medical school. So I would say that most doctors in rural areas are already equipped. Um, it's basically maybe developing their skills and empowering their skills more. And so, you know, maybe having more CMEs, uh, continued medical education, developing professional education in, in relation to mental health. I think these are areas that they can focus on to be able to be more, you know, uh, sort of equipped to deal with patients with these problems. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that I wanted to say is also we have online tools and uh, services that are available, especially during this period, uh, not just for healthcare workers, but also for general public. And, you know, they can reach out if they have problems, even in the rural areas. Um, so Mercy Malaysia, uh, Malaysian Medical Association, they run psychological helplines, uh, either on social media or even by phone. I am a volunteer for MMA helpline. And uh, yeah, um, but the only thing is, I wish there was more take up. There aren't many people who actually, you know, feel obliged to call or discuss these things, <laughs> yeah. even though it can be anonymous. Mm. Yeah, give these hotlines a try. You know, if you're if you're shy to go to see a doctor about something that you're feeling recently, you know, something that's not right, uh, give these hotlines a try. Absolutely. Okay. 
Next article is interesting because it's it talks about the roots of mental illness. Like, is there a root cause of mental illness? Is it in the genes? Is it from the brain activities? Is it yeah. nature? Is it nurture? Yeah. Well, actually, it uh, can be either. It can be, you know, combination or it can be none. Because hmm. uh, some mental illnesses arise from no increased genetics or heritability uh, or no brain disorder and can be completely psychological or functional. Others can have one or a combination. So take, for example, bipolar disorder. Uh, it's not a very common disorder. It may occur in 1% to 2% of the population, but it is quite disabling. And it is... Doctor, can we please maybe explain what bipolar disorder is? Okay, yep. Yeah. So bipolar disorder is a mood disorder where there are highs and there are lows. And the highs are called mania, the lows are called depression. And so it can be quite disabling for the individual with bipolar disorder. But bipolar disorder is thought to be one of the most heritable mental disorders and can have a risk of 50 to 75% among immediate family. I had a family where the mother and the two sons all had bipolar disorder. Uh, then there are cases of, for example, winter birds in temperate climates, you know, where they have winter and everything. Uh, there is evidence of more schizophrenia occurring uh, in babies born in winter. When they grow to be an adult, the risk of schizophrenia is higher in them compared to babies born in summer, spring or autumn. Now, that's thought to be linked to a seasonal flu, which is very common in temperate climates, you know, that occurs during summer. And the second trimester of pregnancy is the time when the brain is being developed in the fetus. If that brain development is hindered by a small flu, it can then increase the vulnerability for schizophrenia at a later time. So, yeah, so it can be genes, it can be brain activity, but then, you know, you have a trauma in your family, somebody passes away and you go through grief and then depression. Now, that's not brain or genes. It's psychological, you know, so it can be one, it can be a combination. Very often it's a combination and, uh, you know, that's why our treatment also focuses on a multitude of things. So basically that means at any point yep. with the right trigger, any of us could actually um, get, uh, have some kind of a disorder or a mental health issue. Yep. No, you're right. You're right, JD. So, I mean, we all have vulnerability factors. And I think we need to look back and see where or what they are in our lives. I mean, some can be genetics, some can be, you know, experiences in childhood, some can be organic, they've had a trauma or you know, substance use problem in the past. All these will lead to being vulnerable. And so, yeah, we all stand at different gradients of vulnerability in our lives. I mean, with what's going on with this, with this mm. current situation, a lot of people have it's increased and people who just seem regular, seem normal, start to yeah. develop uh, depressive um, mm. um, and anxiety conditions. Problems. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, the CMCO may also prevent people from actually seeking treatment and help. Uh, but in my own practice, I'm seeing an increase in uh, people with mental health problems. Uh, and also those who are stable before now, uh, you know, re-experiencing symptoms all over again. 
Now, doctor, is it easier to treat something that is genetic, that is like inborn or mm. psychological? Well, uh, it depends. Uh, there are many factors, I think, that uh, you know, can determine that. Um, if it's genetic and it leads to neurochemical changes in the brain, it may be easier to treat. Mm. But if it's genetic and it leads to neuroanatomical changes, it means brain changes altogether and not mm -hmm. just neurochemical, then that may be a bit harder. Mm. So we have different types of schizophrenia as well, type 1, type 2. And in these types, there are brain changes in the type 2, which actually suggests it may be harder to treat. Mm, okay. But I mean, psychologically, sometimes people, people's minds, it's very hard to change as well, right? It's, it's pretty hard to treat. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that depends also on your personality traits. Mm. So people who already have personality traits uh, that, you know, maybe uh, make them more anxious and avoidant and then develop an anxiety disorder, it may complicate the outcomes in the treatment. Okay. Researchers in this article actually said that if you have one disorder, it is more likely that you might develop another. Mm. Um, why is that? Well, actually, comorbidity is very common. I mean, most people with a mental health disorder also have symptoms of another. Uh, in fact, you know, we use the ICD classification, the WHO in, uh, International Classification of Disorders uh, for Mental Health. That's the official classification in Malaysia. And in the ICD-10, they actually have a condition called mixed anxiety with depression. Mm. Now, that's not in DSM. Because, I mean, the DSM is the American classification of disorders. Uh, because they don't see that very often in America. Uh, but we see it in developing countries more. And I see in my own practice, I see a lot of patients with a mixture of anxiety and depression. And they're both equally significant. So they fit into this category called mixed anxiety with depression. Uh, yeah, but like... Uh, so most of our patients with depression can have anxiety. It can be vice versa as well. Uh, and sometimes it's a chicken and egg story. Mm. You know, someone who, for example, uses drugs uh, may trigger off a depression or anxiety or a psychotic episode. Or it could be that he or she has an underlying illness which they are self-medicating with their drugs or alcohol. So, yeah, very often the comorbidity is present. Mm. But you mentioned it does. The Americans don't seem to have this standard. Those in the developing countries yeah. do. So is it a, geo, a, geo, a geographical thing or is it a socioeconomical thing? Well, actually, there are some studies that suggest that cultural, socioeconomic, and uh, you know uh, what do you call um, geographical may play a role. I mean, the further you're away from mental health services, and the less understanding you have of mental health, then your symptoms become more physical. Yeah? So if you're experiencing depression, but you can't express it, you can't say, I feel sad, I feel depressed and down, you may show it in anxiety. Your heart beats faster, you're trembling, you're shaking, you're going to faint, you're going to fall. You know? So yeah, we have a physical expression of our mental health sometimes. Let's move on to our next article, which actually says that meat eaters tend to have better psychological health than vegetarians, which is 
interesting because we were told that eating a plant-based diet is much better for our health, but it might yeah. not be better for our mental health. <laughs> uh, I think this study is a bit controversial. First and foremost, it's not really a study. It's a review. So they looked at 18 studies that were done in the past and then co compiled all the data and then, you know, try to make some statistics to identify which, you know, the outcomes were. And in the end, when they came up with the statement, they couldn't justify it. They didn't have explanations. Uh, but some of the hypotheses that they came up is it could be cause and effect problems. So, you know, people with depression and anxiety sometimes self-medicate by changing their diets. And they may omit certain things in their food. Uh, or they may become more sensitive in their thinking and, you know, not want to see animals being tortured and so omit, you know, meat completely. So, you know, the, the reason for their change could be actually due to an underlying problem already. Uh, the second thing is people who are on a vegetarian diet, um, of course, need to monitor some of their nutrients, minerals and vitamins because just being purely vegetarian sometimes can lead to B12 and vitamin D deficiency, which are closely linked with depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And even fatty, uh, omega-3 fatty acids, uh, as well as iron, all of this actually have been shown to be linked to depression and anxiety as well. Um, so yeah, sometimes it can be actually food exclusion rather than resorting to a healthy diet, you know, in impoverished uh, communities and people who may not have the means, they may be restricted in the food options that they have. And so, you know, they have other factors that are leading to their depression and anxiety, uh, not just their new diet. Serving. So are you saying that diet doesn't play that big of a role when it comes to our mental health? Well, I think it has some influence, but uh, I think there needs to be more research in this. Of course, the uh, direct effect is if we are missing out on nutrients, minerals, and vitamins, which actually can be measured in our blood. Uh, <clears throat> but otherwise, you know, if we supplement ourselves and we chose a diet because of health reasons, then it shouldn't be a problem at all. Yeah. So don't go out there and eat all the meat that you want because you say that this will this will make you feel healthier in your mind. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on to our next article, which is our final one. Um, and this one actually says that children with long-term health conditions may be more likely to experience mental illness in early adolescence than compared to healthy children. This is according to a new research from uh, Queen Mary University of London. So what we want to ask you, doctor, is like, how does a long-term health condition affect a child's mental health? Well, I don't think there's anything new. I mean, it's, we've seen in chronic medical conditions, the risk of mental health problems is actually on the rise. In fact, we just concluded a survey in a heart institute uh, looking at uh, depression and those who have had a heart event and found almost 49% of them had symptoms suggestive of depression. Wow. Uh, now, that's a huge, that's a huge number. number. Yeah. yeah. So they are at higher risk. Uh, but, I mean, generally, chronic illness is defined as illnesses that can't be cured 
but perhaps control with medication and therapy. So a good example would be the asthmatic child who has mild symptoms, uh, but fairly well controlled. And But, you know, the study actually suggests they eventually may have higher mental health issues. Uh, so the chronic condition can affect, of course, their routine activities, friendships, uh, the activity levels, uh, and health-related absenteeism from school can have a huge impact. Uh, people with a chronic medical condition can often be victims of bullying, mm. you know, especially in school. And this will also have an impact on their mental health. Overall, chronic illness will disrupt the child's life. Um, I remember a patient who, as a child, developed psoriasis at a young age. And back in the day, it meant unpleasant, you know, cold tar baths, uh, which he despised. He hated the most. Uh, and often it led to fights with his parents, and his parents were very punitive. And, you know, and then they wouldn't allow him out in the sun. He couldn't be out with his friends. So his whole life was contracted into this bathing in the home. And, you know, that was it. And of course, it affected his mental health. So sometimes it's the illness, but sometimes it can be the treatment and the response from the people around them as well. Okay. So now for parents with children with chronic illnesses, right? Like what can they do to ensure that their child will lead a normal life, you know, in order to not have all these mental health issues come up later in their lives? Well, parenting a chronically ill child can be a real challenge. And it can cause immense stress, uh, not just for the child, but for the parents themselves. And there can be, you know, underlying guilt and sympathy, emotions that can affect the ability to parent uh, supportively as well. In fact, it affects the whole family. Yeah. Um, a few steps that parents need to take is first, educate themselves about their child's illness and get reliable and trustworthy information. Not some, you know, old auntie stale, do this or drink that or eat this. You know, discuss the illness with your child, depending on their level of development, you know, how much they can actually appreciate. I think it's important to have a transparent, open discussion with your child and even with your siblings. And, you know, avoid hiding things because, you know, I mean, all this can make them feel uncomfortable discussing it themselves as well. And help your child deal with feelings about their illness. You know, children don't just go through life without any stress. In fact, we know children and adolescents actually have the highest stress in any lifespan of individuals. And so we need to deal with that. We need to give them that opportunity to discuss these things. I mean, don't just brush things off, but provide support, especially, uh, you know, a listening ear and uh, open communication. You know, one of the things that children often report is they don't want to discuss these things because they fear their parents will get upset. Now, hmm. you've put a you know whole barrier for a child to be able to overcome their mental health related to their chronic illness just because you know your reaction to what they say is different from what they expect. And I think finally, help your child lead a normal life as normal as a life as possible. Give them responsibilities. Don't, you know, take away everything and say, look, um, you know, tell it to his brothers and sisters, you've got to understand him. Don't uh, let him wash the plates. You guys do that and let him be, you know, uh, spared. Give, him, give them responsibilities and maintain boundaries. They can't climb over you. And, of course, let them enjoy life as much as 
other children their age do as well. Of course, with the protection and the advice from their doctors about managing their chronic illness as well. But there, uh, therein lies another problem, though, finding yeah. that balance because some parents are yeah. overbearing, overprotective yeah. of their child because yeah. they have a, a long-term health condition which might yeah. lead to a mental illness. And then yeah. there are some who go just go, "Oh, you'll grow out of it." Yeah. Where is that? Yeah. Where is that fine middle point? Yeah. How can you find that? Well, the thing is, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to think that, oh, we're the only ones involved in this. I mean, there are many parents out there who experience the same thing and the same illness and the same sort of condition. So I think parent support groups are really helpful. Uh, doctors should actually discuss this with parents to f- where to find help for themselves first, find out information and learn from others who have actually dealt with this. You know, they may have grown up kids and, you know, been there before and they can actually you know, be a huge source of support for others. How about for uh, so how, bullying? How did, yeah. Like how about when a child has yeah. a chronic illness and, and he goes to school, for example, I've mm. seen this case of the this child has having this very rare skin condition called the ichthyosis or something like that that makes yeah. it like like it's Jesus. really tight. Uh, yeah. His skin is really tight and he yeah. gets bullied in school a lot because nobody dares to go near him thinking that yeah. it will contract, you know, they will contract yeah. this disease. So yeah. how do you deal with bullying? Well, I think it has to be the teachers and the people in the school who are involved in this as well. I mean, just like the parents, they're the caregivers at home and they want to have an open, transparent discussion and be honest with their children and the siblings. That has to happen even in school. You know, so I think it'd be good for the class teacher to have that discussion, you know, with the other students. And, you know, <clears throat> of course, it's not going to wipe out all bullying and everything else. So sometimes it's about also educating the child on how to help himself or herself deal with, you know, people with, who have negative uh, attitudes towards them and build their own resilience as well. 